Welcome to Day One Fans, brought to you by Listening Party and recorded at Canal Street Radio. I'm your host, Lachelle Cousin, and today we're talking with Kirk Maynard, who is a visual artist and educator. Welcome yes. to the show. I'm glad to be here. Um, so today's topic is going to be about dismantling systemic racism through mm-hmm. using visual art, and we'll talk more with him about that later. But first, let's get into Currently Obsessed. Yes. What are you obsessing over? So right now, I'm obsessed over an artist and also... Um, a film. Okay. And so I'll talk about the artist first. So cool. her name is Bisa Butler. Um, okay. She's an amazing like quilter. And um, I stumbled upon her Instagram page because the area where I'm working, the school that I'm working at, she used to teach mm-hmm. there. And then she, of course, eventually moved on and became very famous um, with her quilts. And they're just so beautiful. And I encourage everyone to follow her. Are they She's the African-American themed quilts? Yes. Is that what who I'm thinking of? Yes, okay. they are. And so she like takes all of these... Um, old like African-American pictures. There's one of like Frederick Douglass that she did and she uses all these like old images and puts them on these quotes and it's just amazing. And so she's an amazing um, woman and also she recently had her um, her first solo show um, in New York City. I think it was in Chelsea as okay. well. Well, I th- not maybe not Chelsea. I think it was in Harlem actually at the Claire um, Olivier Gallery. And it's just, yeah, she's amazing. So... Well, can you buy her quilts to like wear or are they uh, just no. like visual like art pieces? Um, They're visual art pieces. Okay. And so she, yeah, <laughs> she has like these large quilts that she hang, hangs up. And so, yeah. Nice. Can't buy them. But, well, you can I mean, buy, you them, buy them. But, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. She, she's priced out. She's priced out now. Right. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. They're probably worth, you know, tens of thousands, but amazing work. Cool. What else? All right, so I'm going to talk about the film. Um, it was actually mentioned um, by Trump as well on one of his oh, like uh, <laughs> his rallies. It was like, oh, what a South Korean film! What? What? Oh, what, Parasite. What yes, Parasite. Yes. I love Parasite. Um, just kind of like, and not only that, but I guess because I'm like a political artist and things like that, just seeing how comedy could be made out of class division mm-hmm. um, was uh, definitely a very fascinating part. And I'm not going to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it, but it's amazing. You should see it. If you South haven't Korean seen it, film. we actually talked about this on the last show, but oh. if you don't feel bad, because mm. I don't think you can talk about this film enough, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Um, if you haven't seen it, you need to see it. Mm-hmm. Like it's, I feel like it's, it's important, obviously, culturally, historically, mm-hmm. but like it really is something, a message that everyone really needs to like take heed to. Yes, definitely. It's amazing. So yeah, those are my um, big two that I really love. Um, I have a couple of things. Um, Mm -hmm. I started watching... Okay, don't judge me, but I've gotten back into true crime, which I know mm-hmm. it's like, why does anyone watch true crime? But whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just watched this um, miniseries called Don't Fuck With Cats uh-huh. on oh, I've Netflix. I've heard of that. Yeah. How it's is it? insane. Like, I, uh-huh. I was really just watching it because I was trying to fall asleep. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I was like, let me just watch this, whatever. It's about this man who basically went online. Mm-hmm. Um, and not basically. He went online and killed two kittens— Mm. In a vacuum cleaner. And Whoa. some animal rights people just like, had this like Facebook group and like were researching mm-hmm. and trying figuring out who he was based on the video, yeah. even though you can't really see much in the video. Mm-hmm. And basically they were on to this man for years before law enforcement finally 
caught up with him. But mm-hmm. by the time law enforcement caught up with him, he had murdered an actual person oh, wow. on film. And I was like, how mm-hmm. How have I never heard of this? Because it was yeah. international. Because uh-huh. he's from Canada, but then he fled to France and then he fled to Berlin. But Whoa. I never heard about this person before. Mm-hmm. So that was like... Really, no. I'm still. I I literally just finished watching it before I came to record. Yeah, so it's I'm still insane. like I'm still processing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so insane how like you know when you see like all these true crime stories, especially on Netflix, that there's stories that you haven't heard before outside right. of like the most famous ones. Yeah, like for instance, I was um recently watching Mindhunter, and the mm-hmm. newest season um deals with uh, I think like murders in Atlanta. So child murders in Atlanta that happened. I think in, oh like, yeah, yeah, I remember that all the black, yeah. little black yeah. boys. Yeah, yeah, and I was like, I never heard about this until now. Until like you actually watch the show, so it's really insane how that happens. Yeah, um, well, it ended on a. Interesting note because uh-huh. one of the people who had been doing like all this investigative stuff in the Facebook group was just like, you know, the thing that bothers me the most about it was I don't know if we were complicit in mm-hmm. his crimes because they they kind of fed his narcissism yeah. because he, he was really doing it for attention. Like he mm-hmm. wasn't doing it sneakily. Like he kind of wanted to be caught and like had all these different themes and yeah. was leaving people clues on where to find him next, mm-hmm. but could never catch up with him because he was also inspired by the film Catch Me If You Can. Yeah. So she was like, you know, at what point do we have a responsibility to not feed into this type of stuff? Mm-hmm. And she was like, even you watching this documentary. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? She right. I need to turn this off. <laughs> Yeah. Um, But yeah, that was crazy. Mm -hmm. And then um, I watched High Fidelity on Hulu. Are you a Zoe Kravitz fan? Um, I don't watch a lot of. You haven't seen uh, much of her. mm -mm. What have you seen her in? As I'm just curious. Oh man, Zoe Kravitz. That's a good question. Other than like on a magazine cover or on the red carpet, I feel like a lot of people are super super interested in her aesthetic because she's like literally like her mother but like a younger version but a lot of people aren't as tuned in to like her actual acting work Mm -hmm. yeah yeah how is it um I really liked it I enjoyed Mm -hmm. it I I'm a big Zoe Kravitz fan so like Mm -hmm. I've seen her in um all actually all different types of roles like you would Mm -hmm. actually be surprised at the amount of range she has as an actress I've Mm -hmm. seen her in like dramas about being from like a really broken home. I've Mm -hmm. seen her play like an anorexic girl, (laughs) like in treatment. I've seen her in dope. Um, That film by, I can't, I'm I'm losing his name. The guy who directed The Wood. Guy who directed The Wood. He has an African name. I can't think of his name. I'm going to hate myself for it later. But I've seen her in that. Big Little Lies. Like, mm-hmm. I've seen her in all different things, but I feel like this role was so good for her because it felt mm-hmm. like it was Zoe Kravitz. Yeah. Like, it, it was just such a cool role. And I like that it's a remake of a John Cusack film, mm-hmm. uh, which was based on a book. But the thing is, we have so many freaking remakes right now and oh, so many yeah. reboots. And I like mm-hmm. that this was like a completely different spin because it was a mm-hmm. female protagonist instead of a male protagonist. Mm-hmm. And it was more relevant to now. But basically, she plays this like record store owner who is terrible at relationships mm-hmm. and is trying to like figure out what's wrong with her. But just, you know, the typical like toxic, like... Sex in the City, like, oh my God, I can't find love. But yeah. but I like that it had the element of her being a record store owner because mm-hmm. the music was really, really good. Nice. And they mm-hmm. used the music to kind of like tell stories. Mm-hmm. Questlove was the music producer for the, oh. for the um, whole series. So 
the selection is like really good. Like mm-hmm. after watching, I'm like, I need to find a playlist for this show. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was really good. And then music, I've been listening to this artist, um, Arlo Parks. Mm-hmm. One of my friends mentioned her on a show we did previously, but I just have to mention her again because she, so she's um, based out of the UK. Um, she's done a few different EPs. She has very like, very down temple, soulful, but kind of like, just this tinge emo. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love her. I love her uh, songwriting because I feel like it's really reflective of not my generation. I'm a millennial, but of her generation because like she has a project called Super Sad Generation mm-hmm. where a lot of them are dealing with like anxiety and depression and identity crisis mm-hmm. at a much younger age than what we dealt with because yeah. they're exposed to so much more at such an earlier age. Mm-hmm. Um, so she has this she has this song, Sophie, um, that I like that really illustrates that idea. And then she recently released this track called Eugene, which I found mm-hmm. really interesting because it's basically like, a love song about a queer girl who's in, in love with her best friend that's mm-hmm. really in love with like another guy. <laughs> and she has this line where she's like, you read him Sylvia Plath. I thought that was our thing. And I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh, she's giving me sad queer girl vibes. Aww. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I love that. And I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Oh, I recently discovered an artist out of Detroit. Her name is Charity. Mm-hmm. She's a, I hate using the word neo-soul because I feel like neo-soul is more of a movement than like a genre in itself. Mm -hmm. I feel like people call any soul that's not classic soul neo-soul, but I I don't know. I'm weird like that. But um, she released a project called Tenderheaded. Mm. Um, And what drew me to the project was the packaging because it's this image of her getting her hair. She has this like bright red hair. Mm -hmm. It's in braids and she's like getting it braided. Um... And I feel like Solange kind of kicked off this this new era of like people having it's a lot of hair picks, right? Yes, a lot of hair. I think I've seen her work before. Yes, and like someone braiding the hair and the background is like one color. Yes, like one. Okay, yeah, I've yeah. seen it. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I was listening to her project, and uh-huh. I, I like that there's like more projects. I'm not to say that they didn't exist before Seat at the Table, but I feel like mm-hmm. a Seat at the Table really gave voice to a lot of artists like that who mm-hmm. really wanted to like really dig their heels into the blackness and like talking about the black Mm -hmm. experience from the viewpoint of specifically being a black woman. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, that's that's all I got. Cool. All right. So we'll add the links to all of these songs and names of people in the description. Um, Email your suggestions to dayonepot at gmail. A quick note is um, I did recently post about accepting voice notes and you guys did send some, but I do have to ask you guys to keep it to a minute or less. I can't <laughs> play like a full like five minute voice note on the, the podcast because it kind of takes away from the person who's here on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. So let's get into this topic. So we're talking about dismantling systemic racism through visual art. I think we're in a really interesting time. I always say that, but we are. Um, specifically in New York City, there's a lot that's happening within the fine art world. And as it relates to Black artists, there's a lot of like, you know, MoMA's trying to rebrand and, like, and, and be more quote unquote inclusive. You know, Brooklyn Museum has done a lot of um, exhibits um, geared towards 
Black voices. And I really wanted to talk about how visual art can be a device towards challenging, you know, systemic racism and also just provoking thoughts in people, different thoughts that they may not have had in ways that other creative mediums don't necessarily do. So I want to talk to you first about your background. How did mm-hmm. you get into visual art? Um, yeah, I guess. Well, I'm an artist and an art teacher. I am. And the way I got into it first was as an art teacher. That's how I always started because I really liked my high school art teacher. And so I said, you know what? I think I'm going to do that. Um, and so I ended up going to um, a school called Andrews University, um, which is a Christian university in Michigan. Um, Backwoods of Michigan, the biggest thing <laughs> there that was uh, a hangout place was maybe the local Walmart, right? Very, so, very Midwestern. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and so I ended up going there. And it was during that time that, you know, of course, I was really getting into art education because I was always someone that really liked to speak and help people, mm-hmm. especially with art. Yeah. I loved that. And, uh, you know, just going through that process was definitely a very big revelation for me. And it was at that time, too, where I was just kind of like drawing on my own. But it wasn't a lot, right? I right. was still focused on like the art education aspect of um, the actual work. Um, and so later on, I eventually moved to New Jersey, where I'm currently at. Um, and so I ended up working in the Newark public school system um, there. And it was during this time where I kind of like had a revelation that I wanted to kind of like maybe move my work away from certain things I did in the past, like fan art, even though mm-hmm. I love it, right? Yeah. I love illustrations. I love comics. Yeah. I'm a very big um, comic book fan. I used to do that all the time. I started wanting to create work of my own because mm-hmm. I became very political. And it, you know, it had a lot to do where with where I came from. Um, so for instance, you know, at Andrews University, you know, it's this Christian college and a lot of the people there were split um and so you'd have white evangelicals and even like the black christian evangelicals Mm -hmm. thinking about politics and about their existence in a different way and this was during like 2010 to 2014 the rise of that black lives matter movement so everything was really crazy and um during that period of time and so what ended up happening there was a split right And so you'd have a lot of, you know, the white evangelicals who really believed in the concept of, you know, social justice on earth isn't as important because if you're doing right here on earth, then you will get your heavenly blessing in heaven, right? Right. So the good people will get their blessing in heaven. And of course, the people who aren't the Hitlers of the world will, of course, get their just desserts, right? And of course, um, the other side of the group, a lot of black Christians during that time believed in the idea called black liberation theology or mm-hmm. liberation theology, which is the idea of liberating people here on earth yeah. you know, as well as in heaven. And so um, that was the split. And it was pretty big because you see, you know, especially like during the time of Trayvon Martin, when he got right. shot, you'd see people kind of like, you know, talking, especially some of the white evangelicals saying, you know, you know, maybe if he didn't wear what he wore, he wouldn't have gotten shot or, you know, George Zimmerman was attacked. So they would kind of like place certain stereotypes Mm -hmm. on, you know, the black body during that period of time. And as a result of that, you know, they tried to make their worldview fit with it, right? This type of worldview that it was his responsibility. Alternative facts. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, And so, I think, and so I left Andrews University with all of this happening during that time, all of this tension. Um, And so when I went to, you know, New York public school system, even though I was teaching there, you know, I was still trying to think about my own work, 
you know, how can I talk about the issues that matter to me? You know, this political issue that started there, that I didn't address, right? I didn't really want to go into it at the time. How can I think about that, you know, in my current moment? And that's kind of like what got me to develop my own ideas outside of kind of like the fan art. So I started to move away from some of the fan art, mm-hmm. a lot of it, basically all, and started to move into more political direction with my work. Got it. Not related to your work, but have mm-hmm. you heard of um, Kumasi Barnett? I have not. Um, mm-hmm. If you're a comic book lover, uh, you would love him. He basically mm-hmm. recreates comics that um, look like black, like their commentary on mm-hmm. social, black social issues. Oh, wow. So you should definitely look into him. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, so... Before you even got there, before mm-hmm. you even were in art school, yeah. what is like? What, your, what was your background growing up? Were you mm-hmm. always into art? Was it something that your family th- encouraged you to do? Was it something that you felt was realistic for mm-hmm. you? Yeah. Um, so it started in New York City because that's where I'm originally from. Where in New um, York? Brooklyn. So I lived um, near Flatbush. I still remember it. Albany Avenue between Church and Linden. Okay. So I still remember the literally exact street that I lived. And right across from me, there was um, a Catholic school that I went to when I was like in pre-K, kindergarten, mm-hmm. first grade. Um, and so I, every now and then, every time I come back to New York City, I try to pass around, see what it's like. It's much different. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's <sure>. much different. <laughs> um, and so it was there that it kind of started. Because I, I remember me and my cousin, you know, he lived um, not too far away from me. Probably like, I'd say 15 minutes away from me. Mm-hmm. And we usually like hang out during the weekends. And what we do, we'd have like, you know, those marble books, like those black and white marble books. Yeah. So we'd like draw these like stupid comics inside. So I guess that's kind of like where my okay. first love started. And then we There'd be explosions and like I'd just draw superhero stuff in those books. So it'd be so chaotic. I have no idea where they are right now. But that's kind of like where it started. So mm-hmm. I started drawing these type of comics in their note in the notebook with my cousin. And then later down the line, I don't remember exactly when, but I was home and uh, I don't know. I was eating cereal, right? And I still remember it this day. I'm not sure if it was like a Frosted... No, it had to be a Frosted Flakes box because I loved (laughs) Frosted Flakes at the time. So it was a Frosted Flakes box. And on the back of the box was um, Beauty from Beauty and the Beast. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to like take a paper and, you know, I just do a sketch of it. I don't know because I was just into like art at the time. So I was just saying, you know, I wanted to challenge myself to see if I could do a person, like an actual person. And I did it. I had got some colored pencils. I colored it in. And I was like, you know what? I really like that. I think that was like the <laughs> I can't first do that work. at all. So, <laughs> And that was like the first work that I actually liked. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to try to create more of these. And so I started there, that phase. Right. And then I went into my anime phase. I think every artist has to have like a drawing anime phase. I swear like every artist that I've ever seen that, you know, I've, I've been like amazed at their work. They have some type of anime phase where they've really? been just drawing anime It's characters. very specific. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. And so I just, you know, at the time I was, I loved Naruto, you know, Bleach. One Piece, just a whole bunch of like amazing, you know, anime shows. And I just draw them like all the time, you know, even though my high school art teacher who influenced me to become a current high school art teacher, you know, said, you need to learn how to draw, you know, with the, you know, all the anatomy and everything else. I still kind of like wanted to draw, you know, my anime characters, but I'm glad that she kind of pushed me to kind of like get more realistic with my work. Um, 
but yeah, that's kind of like where it started. It started first with the the crazy comics in the in the black books, and then it kind of went to the cereal box, and then I had my anime phase. Um, and so from my anime phase, I think that's when I went into like the fan art phase. Got and it. so you know, just when I was able to kind of like get comfortable, you know, drawing anime poses and things like that, I then started to kind of like go into the the moment where I'm actually thinking about you know. Maybe I want to try to draw things, you know, realistically. And so I'd start sketching, you know, different part, new different parts of the body out. You know, there was this um, trip that I went to um, what in my undergrad program that was um, a study tour, and we went to Italy, France, Switzerland. Yeah, I think those were the big ones: Italy, France, and Switzerland. Oh, and London, and um. It was an amazing experience because I actually got to draw. That was the, the time where I actually got to draw from life where I didn't do it a lot before. Mm-hmm. Like all the things that I was doing before was either from imagination or from just like reference photos or like the computer screen that right. I'd see. And so I'd get to draw people like from life while I was, you know, over there in Italy. You know, I'd get to draw people from life. You know, when there was this place called Chip and Camden. It was actually one of the places where the first like um, steelworker trademen in London, you know, existed or are kind of like made their homes. And of course, it got gentrified. Of course. <laughs> Just like <laughs> here, you know, when the artists move in and, you know, they do everything, you know, everyone else wants to move in. Yep. But it was just an amazing experience to kind of like see that. And so, yeah. So do you have a preference over what you draw? Do you prefer doing from like real life? Do you prefer like mm-hmm. imagination? Oh, um... I think it's a mixture. I've never been good at imagination, frankly. Um, I've always been someone who's used either reference or done it from life. I don't know what's wrong because I've always said, you know what? One of these days, one of my passion projects would be to create a graphic novel. But I'm saying, ah, I need to work on that imagination part because I've always been a type of person that, you know, applied my political self or my research to my actual work. But I'd use references. So I'd have people who would take from who I'd be able to take photos of, or I've had people in my studio that I'd be able to work from. But I've never like created kind of like worlds that, you know, like a comic book artist would. Mm -hmm. And so that's actually something that I've been thinking about, creating some type of graphic novel as a passion project in the future. But most of the time I work from um, reference. And I guess a little bit of it does have to be imagination because in the political sphere, you know, if you're working with that, you're also interpreting it in your own mind. So I guess I do work from some form of imagination. I guess everyone does as an artist. But I definitely kind of like use those references and observation as I kind of like go through my art practice. Right. So you have this whole journey of drawing comics and Mm -hmm. anime. You decide to go to school for arts education. Mm -hmm. And then you're in this space of this kind of polarizing, um, more conservative space where you're, you're grappling with the idea of basically being expected to choose between theological versus Mm -hmm. liberation and all that. Mm -hmm. So you create your first culturally responsive piece. What was that like for you? Like, did you, were you afraid to start, to start venturing out and doing something that might not be received well by certain parties? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's such a big fear. It's such a big fear to go political because when you're drawing things that, you know, People can see and understand like, you know, a picture of someone famous, Mm -hmm. right? Or a picture of like an anime character, whatever that is. People notice it, right? And right away. And, you know, you get like, you know, wow, that's amazing. Everything else, you know, 
And there is a temptation to do that because you feel that that can sell. Right. Right. And so when I went to grad school um, and I'd have, you know, these professors, you know, talking to me about, you know, giving me advice on kind of like thinking about things of a political nature. And I'll talk about um, one of the works I um, did, such as the Dream Deferred Project and then Red later on. I was terrified because I was like, oh, what if I'm not able to sell this? Yeah. Right. Because I'm an artist. That's what I want to do. Or not even that. What if I can't, you know, like, what if being political hurts me, like, in the social yeah. sphere, right? Because it's know? hard to convey. A lot of things can be left up for interpretation. And yes. so if you, don't, if you don't portray something very, very specifically, mm-hmm. it could be received poorly by both, both sides. Yeah. What, yeah. What if I get canceled, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. so, you know, there's a lot of um, tension that goes into creating political work. Um and so I started to do it. My first one was called Dream Deferred. I'll get to Red in a little bit later. And that was actually a work that I, um, I did in pencil because I was comfortable with pencil at the time. That was kind of like my first political, major political work. And so the work dealt with um, uh, one of Langston Hughes' poems. Um, yep. The, and so it goes, uh, you know, what happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like, like a raisin, raisin in the, the sun? sun? Yes! <laughs> At the same time. That's amazing. <laughs> um, and so I actually had like the Constitution of the United States, right? And so I drew it around like four or five times. And each time it'll start to get more crumpled until the final one was it was crumpled into the shape of a raisin. And so I was wow. kind of like talking about the idea of that dream, the American dream, not being realized, you know, for a lot of people. It got dried up like a raisin in the sun. You know, for instance, you know, some and I have all these experiences because my parents are Caribbean Mm -hmm. and they know a lot of Caribbean people. And so I know a lot of (laughs) Caribbean stories. And you'd have like, you know, a lot of people coming from, you know, these Caribbean countries here to America, especially in the 80s and the 90s. You know, they'd come because they'd say, you know, America is this land of opportunity. I'm able to do this, you know. Everything is, you know, wonderful. I'm trying to leave my land to go to somewhere where I could get opportunity. And, and then what, us who've been here are like, oh, it's yes, a lie. Exactly. <laughs> you know, they come here, they work two, three jobs, man. Yeah. That, yeah. That, that, that's, um, that's how my pastor say, two, three jobs, because he's Jamaican. And, and you'd see them kind of like working all, all these jobs, you know, struggling, you know, right. to make it. And then the question has to be asked, you know, is the American dream realized for everyone if this is happening in the society? And right. that comes to like a totally different um, area of income inequality that, you know, now we're just talking about all the time. And so, you know, it definitely kind of like gets to that level. I mean, I think that's why they call it a dream because it's not something that can be realized for mm-hmm. everyone. Um, and it's really interesting. It's very interesting to see a take from someone specifically who comes from an Afro-Caribbean background because mm-hmm. we've had obviously similar struggles, but they're different in the sense that like, I think for us, like African-Americans, mm-hmm. there's so many people who don't even want to dare to dream because mm-hmm. of, exactly. of the things that we've endured, you know, mm-hmm. lynching, Jim Crow, mm-hmm. all of these things. Exactly. And so a lot of Caribbean people come over here and they're able to have the fervor mm-hmm. <laughs> to have the audacity mm-hmm. audacity of hope <laughs> mm-hmm. um, <laughs> so what do you think are some of the the messages that you're trying to convey and do you feel that you like how granular can you get with those you mm-hmm. know like you're com- you're communicating 
in that specific piece, like mm-hmm. a dream deferred. But yeah. like, it's not talking specifically about how it is. Like mm-hmm. how how do you kind of yeah? How that? far down do I go? Right. Um. So. I guess I do go down pretty far. And I guess that takes me to my Red Project. Um, <laughs> okay. So it, it's perfect, perfect lineup. Um, and so when I was starting the Red product, um, Red Project, that was actually the second kind of like political work that I did right after that. And that one dealt with housing discrimination. And so I literally took photos of the houses in my area yeah. and in Newark, New Jersey and in like, you know, all of these different, you know, sectors of my neighborhood that I lived and kind of like juxtaposing them and putting them against, you know, some of the areas that are a little bit high, are um, a little bit more high income. Mm-hmm. So for instance, right now I live in Orange, New Jersey, um, which is one of the lowest socioeconomic areas in the state. Um, and then right next to me is South Orange, which right. is one of the highest. And so I actually take photos of areas in my neighborhood compare them to images that were in South Orange and other high-income neighborhoods. I basically put them together. And that was actually my first collage piece. And that was actually something that I I said, you know what, I'm going to branch out. And this kind of like goes to a moment where I guess I was not afraid anymore. And I started to care less about how did this make money and started to care more about what was the message that I wanted Mm, to get, right? I started to care more about, you know, speaking to issues that I cared about. Because when I was drawing fan art, that was all nice and good. But I got bored easily. Right. Right. You know, I draw these You're not people. being challenged. Yeah. And right. I'd be like, at the end of the day, I wouldn't want to draw for months on end. Right. Because I was not connected. Do you ever f- feel afraid that you will alienate or, I guess, keep yourself from being able to infiltrate the spaces those messages need to get into? Mm-hmm. Um... That is a fear of mine. Um, the but the biggest um, thing that I kind of like do to rebut it is not care. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and as I think that a lot of times uh, the biggest thing that you can do as an artist is not care, right. um, because then you're willing to kind of like speak your mind, mm-hmm. and be being willing to speak your truth is so important. Right. And so I'd be willing, you know, when I after I create a piece. I would go, you know, all over and speak about it. I've been to colleges and I've spoken about it. I've spoken about it in my neighborhood. I've spoken about people that have different political philosophies than me. And I think that's the important part. If I have a message and if I care enough about this message and if I care enough about the politics of this message, I can't be afraid. Right. Right. And so releasing myself of that fear was probably the biggest step that I could have ever taken in my artistic life. Because before where I was afraid of dealing with the money issues about whether, you know, how if I'm getting too political, how people would, you know, react to the political nature of it. Now I'm saying, you know, I have to speak how I feel. Right. And that's important. Yeah. And also not just speak how I feel, but also realize, you know, how to talk to different groups. Because like I said, you know, Having tact is also important. Yes. You know, you see a lot of people that, you know, would go into an area, you know, and would just kind of like, you know, bring it. Like how they would bring it without realizing what that community needs in order to influence. And I'm big right. on influence, right? right? If I believe that when I'm creating a work, I always try to speak about it to the audience, right? And I always try to make sure that I'm listening to the audience because politics is all about trying to win other people over. It is. You cannot have, and this is something that I care deeply about, you cannot have a moment where you're just gung-ho and you don't recognize who your audience is. Right. So for instance, you know, I when I speak about the issue of police brutality, I talk about it differently when I'm with liberals and with conservatives. 
And so, for instance, listen, you talk to conservatives. <laughs> good for you. Yes, can't be me. Yes, and so one of the things that I've um I always say when when I'm speaking to conservatives because I was a um very politically active, you know, in undergrad when I was at Andrews that um um was. When it comes to police brutality, and this is one of the things I had to tell them, especially during that time, you know, think about the fact that you're a conservative and you don't like, you know, big government. You know, now think of the fact that, you know, the police are agents of the state. Would you want government to be abused by agents of the state, you know, against people of color? Isn't that an abuse of the government that, you know, that you're you, against? Yeah, that yeah. you're against. And so I framed it a lot of ways in a limited government type of sense. Um, whereas when I'm speaking to liberals, of course, I'm talking to them more so about strategies of how we can speak to because other people about it. Because the issue with being on the liberal side mm -hmm. is that a lot of us lament about what we are frustrated about, yeah. but we don't really focus our energy on solutions. Yes, yes. And I'm so solutions-based. Yeah. Very solutions-based. And so I always say, you know, it's important to have, you know, the revolutionaries, I love them, right. right? But it's also important at the end of the day, what do you want to achieve through it? Right. Because that's the only way that I can move forward. Right. You know, and so that's kind of like why I'm always, you know, I always show my work, but I also make sure I'm doing the research so I can actually speak about my work and I actually know how to speak to other people. That was something that I had to learn. Yeah. How to speak to other people. And how to relate. Mm -hmm. Like how how to understand where people are coming yes, from. Exactly. I think sometimes big. when people are on the other side of things, we just a lot of people are, have the tendency to be like, ugh, like yeah. you believe something different mm -hmm. and that's gross. And like you said, cancel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but if you are talking with someone who's actually willing to have a conversation mm -hmm. with you about those things, you yeah. do need to be open to understanding like what that perspective is. Yes. I think that's why I'm so frustrated with this current um, election stuff that's going on, but I'm not going to yeah. get into that because I'm stressed. <laughs> um, so <laughs> um, pivoting a little bit, what, who are some of your heroes, like artists that mm -hmm. you saw that were doing something similar to what you were doing mm -hmm. um, or maybe you discovered later on that kind of have, you know, similar um, tendencies to be political and know how to engage in, in mm -hmm empower their audience. My favorite artist, Kehinde Wiley. Actually, <laughs> yeah. that's so funny. Um, I love Kehinde. 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 I should know his name. Um, he's actually uh, my partner's friend. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was like, that's amazing. You know Kehinde Wiley? I know, right? You know Kehinde Wiley. Um, <laughs> that's amazing. Um, and he's been doing it for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Any other people? Um, so that's one. I also like Tatiana Fazlzada's work. I don't know who she is. Um, she so she uh, created this uh, campaign called "Stop Telling Women to Smile." Oh, I've heard of that, and it's yes. those the, yes. the street art images. I yes. didn't know her name. Uh -huh. Yes, I love that campaign. Yes, and so she and she did um actually did some murals in um Newark as well. So her work is and and. It, in the, um, the Rutgers Newark Gallery is one of the galleries. Her work is there. Amazing work. Um, and definitely very important work to deal kind of like with catcalling right. and how society treats women. Um, so she's another artist that I've um, really been following. I mentioned Bisa Butler before. Mm -hmm. um, another artist that uh, I've really um, kind of like been watching. Um, oh, Derek Adams. That's also my partner's friend. What just, in the world? I was that just at amazing. his birthday party last month, his 50th birthday party. Derek's up the homie, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> Small world. Yes. I think it's just the New York City art yeah. world, right? It's just so, so tight. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and so, a lot of these artists, I think I think those are some of my um, 
my favorite. Uh, oh, but I'll also mention, because I love comic books, my favorite comic book artist, Greg Capullo. Okay. Um, so he does a lot of the Batman issues mm-hmm. of DC. His work is so super tight. And yeah. so I have to give credit to the illustrators. You know, you got to give love to the comic book artists because they do a lot of hard work. Right. Because um, that's, the, that's the biggest part of it. That's what makes those um, issues come out like every single month. Yeah. You know, the artist is grinding away. You definitely um, are going to have to check out a Kumasi exhibit. Uh, I feel like it will blow your mind. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, that's that's and that's good to know because I'm going to test your art history later. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, awesome, <laughs> ready. Um, okay, so when we think of black art, black visual art, mm-hmm. I feel like the most prominent figure is Jean Michel Basquiat. I oh, feel like if you're not yes. a person who's into art, mm-hmm. that's probably the, your main reference mm-hmm. point. If for black artists, mm-hmm. the thing that I really think about a lot when it comes to him and his legacy is mm-hmm. that. A lot of his work was political, but mm-hmm. it was so abstract. And I think mm-hmm. because it was so abstract that it was more digestible to mm-hmm. white audiences because a lot of them are just like, oh, I don't know what this is. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. And I wonder, how is, what has your experience been like trying to take up space in such an overwhelmingly white art world as a political artist? Oh, it's it's hard because I um because I was actually at recently at a conference where I was one of the few black people there who was actually speaking about my work, and uh, I think the hardest part of it was feeling that you know you have to be a representative yes. of you know the blacks right, right? <laughs> um so kind of like having to take that mantle of having to conduct yourself in a certain way mm-hmm. right you know as one of the you know the black people in there and so you know it's interesting because. That was kind of like a habit that I kind of like had to start growing out of not feeling like I had to be this type of person. Right. And I was actually, you know, started speaking about that in one of my um, later projects called Periphery, where I was dealing with the idea of stereotype threat, of feeling, you know, the stereotypes that society has on you and, you know, feeling threatened by them and feeling like you, you, you can't conform to that. Like if you act a certain way, you know, you'll be stereotyped as this. And so changing your behavior because of those stereotypes. Right. right was definitely something that I had to address because I felt it. Yeah. Right? Especially in my early stages of my artist career, I felt it as always being that o- the only black person in the space, you know, and having to navigate that space. And so it has been tough. But, um, but then again, the teacher side of me comes out because I'm always saying, you know, even if I'm like the only black person here, I'm like, you know what? I guess if, since I'm going to be the only one here, I might as well teach him something. Right. 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 So I had to be, you know, that person. Right. Um, and so just trying to straddle those lines and not going too far out of bounds is ha- has kind of been my experience of trying it's to work with The double consciousness. Yes, yes. Yes. I'm I'm interested to know because I do feel like on one hand, like black people should be able to speak to our experiences in these spaces, especially mm-hmm. because our culture is so commodified. Yeah. And so often white spaces do take from us mm-hmm. without giving credit or um, the praise validation that we deserve. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like on the other hand, specifically with visual art, there does seem to be kind of this weird perversion of like them only wanting to see black art if mm-hmm. it's about struggle and yeah. not about you know, joy or any other any other things that are about our complexities that mm-hmm. aren't related to oppression and, and white supremacy. Is that something that you felt as well? Yeah, definitely. I think there is a kind of movement to kind of like talk about like that despair um, that you, um, that's always going to be out there. But, you know, at the same time, that black joy 
mm-hmm. is something that's definitely missing. And so I guess I'll speak about like a project that I did called Serenity. Um, and that was my Black Joy project. Because as you get political, you know, you start getting into the weeds of things like housing discrimination, things like stereotype threat. And I wanted to way to make some of these negative attributes and kind of like put black people out there in a positive light, right? You know, right. rob, you know, some of these negative connotations of their power by kind of like pushing them out, you know, um, positively. So um, the story behind that was, oh, I've always been someone who's read the comments, even though I, I'm never supposed to, <laughs> Ooh, right? Oh, it's a dark place. Yes. Oh, it's dark. <laughs> so YouTube comments, you know, Yahoo.com, who I, I guess for the few people that still Yahoo.com. Yes, yes, Yahoo. Wow. Yes, I still do. Um, <laughs> but I was always that person that read comments um, because I wanted to know what people would think, right? You know, for instance, so I don't know if this took me into a dark place, but, you know, for instance, if there was like, you know, a news story about a black person who committed a crime, I would go to the comments, right? And read to see what they said about them. Because I would want to see, you know, what people would think. I was, you know, even though I was afraid, I knew what would happen. Yeah. It's almost like the call of the abyss, right? Yes. Where I'd want to read to see what they would say. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Sometimes that got me down, right? Because, you know, even though I said, you know, everyone knows you shouldn't read the comments. I still wanted to do it just to see, you know, what people would say. And if there would be like someone who would try to not be as stereotypical in there. But usually, you know, that wouldn't happen. The comments are such a disappointing uh, section. It's just like, really? Yes. But I I feel like they're important because they, I think they are kind of a gauge for where we're still at. We still have a lot of work to do. Mm -hmm, Definitely. It kind of like shows why things and elections happened the way they did. A lot of ways. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so um, one of the things I really wanted to do is take that idea of, you know, the comment section, for instance, if there's like a mugshot being showed of like an African-American, right? You know, and the comment section would be negative. And that was something I was thinking about. I was like, you know, how can I make these images of black people positive? Mm-hmm. And so that was where serenity came into into place. You know, I would start to reappropriate some of these negative images, such as the mugshot or the side profile, into my work. So adding bold, happy colors inside of them. You know, making beauty out of something that has been negative. And that was something that I started to do with my serenity project because I just realized, you know, sometimes in the you know the waters of politics, you get depressed. You know, with it yeah. all, right? Um, right? And I didn't want that, right? right? In order to feel that there can be change and feel like I can go out there and talk about solutions, I had to create work that was positive. Right. I had to create work that represented people that looked like me. And so that was kind of like where I started going. Yeah. One thing that I think people tend to underestimate about visual art is, is how moving it is. You mm-hmm. know, we know that, you know, films can move people, mm-hmm. music can move people. Mm-hmm. But with visual art, I feel like it it challenges you to think to be more perceptive and to mm-hmm. think about things differently. Yeah. What kind of impact do you hope that your work is going to have when someone is viewing your piece mm-hmm. in a gallery in a museum? What do you hope that they do when they when they leave from mm-hmm. viewing it? I hope it gets them to think um, just to not just to think about what people of color struggle with, but also to think about, you know, the fact that we're so diverse, you Mm -hmm. know, in loves, 
you know, we're so diverse in appearances and just kind of like the joy that they can get from looking at a work or the politics that they can get from looking at a work just shows us in that, you know, a positive type of light as people who want to persevere, as people, you know, who just want to exist and live without kind of like the burdens of discrimination. Right. And I think that asking more of that is not necessarily needed. Just because, you know, we live in an age where people think that, you know, of the one event that can change minds for the rest of the lives. That's not how politics has ever worked. Right. You know, my ancestors, you know, who are on the slave ships, you know, coming to America, would have never in their wildest dreams have thought of a place where, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation could have been signed, of where we actually have the freedom of speech to talk about black the Black Lives Matter movement. Right. And so I think we really have to come to a place where we realize that change isn't going to come overnight. Just getting people to think, just talking to people, which is something I love to do, can also change minds. And you know what? You know, even if that one person's mind isn't changed, at least getting them aware of the issue can also bring an impact because maybe that person will talk about an issue with someone else. The change that we seek doesn't happen right away. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes millions of people. Yes. You know, hundreds of years. Yes. A lot of people dying for those rights, you know, yeah. people that are before us. And so taking that in stride is the biggest thing. You know, if I'm able to get people to think, and even if I'm able to get one person, I'm good. Because like I said, it always starts with that one person. It's never something that's overnight. Um, and so that's kind of like why I want people to take away from it. To be able to think and to be able to talk to other people who, you know, may not believe the same things that they do. Because I think that in our society, we, we struggle with that. We come into our enclaves. We're only speaking to people who think like us. Yeah. And in order for challenging us. Mm-mm. In order for us to really make change, we have to be willing to put ourselves out there. And so… I'm willing to put myself out there and I hope everyone else is also willing to put themselves out there. Woo! <laughs> give some snaps. That was a word. Uh-huh. Okay. So, outro segment. Mm-hmm. It's going to be called Reframe and Resist. All right. So, I'm testing your art knowledge um, as a person who doesn't even make visual art. So, how dare I? <laughs> um, so… Mm-hmm. Basically, what I'm going to do is talk about some pivotal black art pieces mm-hmm. throughout the last, not this century, but the century before us. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to just guess who made it. I'm All not right. going to give you multiple choice or anything. Okay, let's so go. Let's I'll see. try with these names. <laughs> <clears throat> All right, first one. In an attempt to indict pre-civil rights discrimination and inequality in America, a 1942 portrait entitled American Gothic, which is a parody of the Grant Wood painting, mm-hmm. the one with the farmer and the wife, mm-hmm. depicts a weary black woman in front of an American flag with a mop and broom in hand. Oh. Who photographed this? Oh. That should be an easy one. should be an easy one. Photograph. A mop and a broom in the hand. What year? 1942. 1942. Black and white. Pre-civil rights. Someone who's been around for a long time taking pictures. (laughs) This is hard. 
<laughs> oh my goodness. I bet if I see her, I'm going to exactly know it. I'll feel totally bad. Well, who photographed it mm-hmm. is what I want to know. It was a black man who photographed it. Oh. Black man photographed it. <laughs> Do you want the answer? Oh, what's the answer? Gordon Parks. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. Black I'm man, so photograph. Terrible. Come on. He set the whole standard. Oh, I'm so terrible <laughs> with that. Oh. It's okay. You got two more chances. All right. <clears throat> Number two. An assertively commanding, full frontal, nude self-portrait entitled Brilliantly Endowed was painted in 1977 by whom? Um, uh, is it Barclay Hendricks? Yay! Yes! There we go. <laughs> <laughs> I got one. <laughs> one out of two. 50%. Woo! Woo! <laughs> All right. Last one. Uh-huh. During the 1983 African American Day Parade in Harlem, 15 dancers were hired to carry empty gold painted frames along the parade route to photograph bystanders by this conceptual artist. Say that one more time. (laughs) During the 1983 African American Day in Harlem, Mm -hmm. 15 dancers were hired to carry empty gold painted frames along the parade route to photograph bystanders by this conceptual artist. Photographed by standards. Gold frames. Mm-hmm. Taking pictures. Do you, do you remember this moment? Probably not. Mm. Mm. Black woman, conceptual artist. Black woman, conceptual artist. What's the first letter? L. Oh, I know her name. <laughs> I know her name. Oh, my goodness. Ah. Same first name as the black woman who wrote A Raisin in the Sun. Oh. Lorna Simpson? Nope. Oh. But that was a good guess. Ah. It was Lorraine O'Grady. Oh, okay. (laughs) One out of three. One out of three. (laughs) Told Mm. you it was going to be hard. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for coming on the show. Where can people find you, your work, your socials? Yeah, definitely. Um, So all my socials are Kirk Maynard Art. Um, so K-I-R-K-M-A-Y-N-A-R-D. You've said that art. a lot, haven't you? Yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, if you see Kirk Maynard Art, that's me. Cool. This episode of Day One Fans is presented in partnership with Listening Party. Follow the crew on Instagram at Listening Party Presents and at Canal Street Market. You can follow the show's Instagram at Day One Fans and me on socials at Created by L. If you like what you heard, be sure to rate, like, subscribe, and share. 